the privilege and the excitement that we each feel this evening is certainly something for which we are very thankful and grateful as we appreciate so many things in the world that cause difficulties, health-wise problems and others, and yet you and I are able to be here tonight and to begin this week on the first, its first day by offering worship and homage and, of course, the heartfelt thanks of our heart to, in fact, God above. As I did near the beginning of the lesson this morning, I feel it appropriate to do so again this evening to express appreciation to the Pippin congregation for those men that will be occupying the pulpit for the next couple of weeks, being that gospel meeting at the Bloomington Springs congregation beginning next Lord's Day morning. And certainly we would invite your prayers to be with that effort and that things there may redound unto the glory of God. Continuing through Wednesday night, beginning next Sunday, being a gospel meeting again there, and then the following Sunday in a gospel meeting in, the, in Wilson County at the Leeville Church of Christ. So if you would, continue to think about those in your prayers and that all those things may, may bring forth much fruit and glory to God. As those men will be filling in here, again, I know that the job that will be done will be far better than just excellent. It will truly be an amazing thing to appreciate these men to use their talents in this way to benefit the congregation here under the oversight of our elders and, of course, to share forth the Word of God for each of us. As we do that, though, tonight, the last Sunday night lesson for a couple of weeks now, at least in the book of Exodus, we will be looking at the fifth installment in that series in which we'll be looking at chapters 10 and 11 tonight. We have already in our study advanced that far in this book of Exodus. We began this by putting ourselves in the same position as our youngsters participating in the Bible Bowl. As they are studying and doing so with diligence and intensity, we too are striving to learn from those puzzles and from our study of Exodus that we can encourage them in their participation in the Bible Bowl effort too. As we've studied so far in Exodus, we have not only looked at a large number of the plagues, and not only have we seen the burning bush scene and episode, we come tonight to yet the continuation of those plagues and to look at some more lessons that can help us on our journey toward eternal life in heaven. Some introductory thoughts, as you can well appreciate them there. Simply an attempt to notice the way that I've structured each of the lessons so far, and I think it'll be the way that I'll attempt to do all of those that follow. All of God's Word, be it Old Testament or New, not only tells a historical record, but it is the fact that that is a living message. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Inasmuch as the Word of God is living and active, that means that record, though perhaps written about people who lived a long time ago, it still has in it lessons and vital ones for you and me today. It's been our attempt to extract some of them in each of these chapters, and we shall attempt to do so again this evening. With those thoughts in mind, let's then do as we have done in the past, and we will overview the historical aspects of chapters 10 and 11, and then we'll seek to look at some lessons that we might draw from them. As we looked at the first of those plagues last Lord's Day evening, we in particular looked at the first seven of them, and we noticed that one by one they each brought about a great aspect of illustrating the majesty and might and power of God over against the helplessness, the weakness, if you please, and the non-existence of any supposed gods in Egypt. 
And one by one, I simply put up most of those we considered last week to highlight those gods that were highlighted in Egypt. And you and I noticed how that God was able in one failed swoop, if you please, to illustrate how truly nothing they really were. When these plagues were brought, those supposed gods couldn't remove them. In fact, they couldn't reduce, diminish, or lessen them in any way. It was only when Moses gave the word that, in fact, that plague was removed. And tonight, as we come to the eighth of those plagues, the one that actually begins in chapter 10, you'll notice that near the bottom, it's the one that is the locusts. You and I had looked, of course, up through the hail last Lord's Day evening, but now we come to the eighth of these plagues, the plague of the locusts. As we begin reading in chapter 10, you find that there is a rather lengthy description of the plague of the locusts, not only what led up to it, but also the way in which both Pharaoh and the Egyptians reacted and responded to it. But as we appreciated, it was a direct attack on one of the most notable of the supposed gods in Egypt. Quite often as our youngsters study ancient history in in schools, Two of the Egyptian gods that are most directly brought before their consideration is Ra and Osiris. And as you'll notice that, the god Osiris is one who you would have thought, at least from the Egyptian perspective, would have been able to offer some protection and provision and security against the onslaught of these locusts. And yet, Osiris could do no such thing. When God gave the edict, the wind brought these locusts. And they came in such numbers that the text even says that you couldn't see the ground for them. That's how thick that they were. And when God brought these locusts, the text goes on to say they ate up everything that the hail had left. That is to say, every green leaf that was on the trees, every greenery by way of vine or otherwise that was present, the locusts consumed it all. And inasmuch as, of course, that brought great economic and financial difficulty on the nation of Egypt, it nonetheless illustrated that Osiris can do nothing about this. It was not until, of course, that Pharaoh besought Moses, who in turn besought God. And then, and only then, was the plague removed. The highlight and feature of that brings us to, in fact, the ninth of these plagues. After the character of the eighth one had come and gone. The locust had brought Pharaoh to at least make a statement. Understanding his failures on many aspects, he nonetheless still continued with a hardened heart. He refused to allow the people to go, in fact, to grant them the opportunity to do anything along the line of what God had requested. And thus, the ninth plague in its quickness and in its swiftness came. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 21, we find the record of the darkness that came over the land. Just as surely as we have looked at these previous eight plagues and have seen that that from which they came was often, in fact, that which was common, like flies and like the other things such as lice. Now we find something as simple as day and night. One appreciates In the ordinary scheme of things, that come daybreak, it remains light. And it does so, of course, until the sun sets that day, and then there's a period of darkness. However, we find in beginning in verse 21 that the following description of this darkness is given. I'll begin reading in verse 22. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, 
And there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Three days. We can immediately appreciate the far extensiveness of this and how that it was not merely some kind of eclipse. There have been those infidels throughout the centuries who have asserted this was nothing but some kind of a solar eclipse. It was no solar eclipse. Solar eclipses, you and I are well aware, during our lifetime we've seen more than one. And they only last a few minutes. This lasted three days. And during that time, the thickness was so dark, the text says it could be felt. We perhaps could liken it to being in a cave beneath ground where literally there is zero illumination, zero intensity. And in that case, no matter how large the pupil of the eye becomes, there is no light to excite the particular light receptors in the eye. And thus, this darkness was so thick, it text says it was even able to be felt. This ninth plague, of course, was a direct onslaught to the god Ra. This, as we've mentioned before, one of the most famous of the Egyptian gods. It was their sun god, S-U-N. And again, with the opportunity that they would have considered to pay homage and respect to this god of the sun... It did again interesting, and notice the sun god could do nothing to remove the darkness. And oddly enough, the darkness only existed in where the Egyptians were and not where the children of Israel were. To look at each one of these plagues, we have found that through nine of them, Pharaoh and the Egyptians continue to have a heart that is hard, a heart that's unwilling to respond with tenderness and appreciation for what these plagues have said all along, that there is a God who truly rules and reigns in heaven, and that all humanity should bow in humble submission before Him. He is the great, awesome, omnipotent God of heaven. With Pharaoh's failure, though, to honor that idea, chapter 11 opens. And in chapter 11, we find the briefest of the chapters that our youngsters are studying. Chapter 11 only consists of some ten verses. And in it, we find the prelude to the tenth plague. God forewarned Moses as to what was going to take place. One more wonder, he said, I shall bring upon Egypt. One more sign I shall show before Pharaoh. One more greatness will I bring in thee, and not only will he allow you to leave, he will drive you out. You and I, of course, know what that tenth plague was. Moses, however, hearing it for the first time, he was told the firstborn are going to die. The firstborn. And as you and I note, the stage is now set for what shall come to pass in chapter 12. We are ready for what that shall bring us. As we move up to that, though, this evening, looking at the scene of chapters 10 and 11, might we come to this particular aspect and begin to notice what some lessons could be to help us even this day in the year 2010. As you'll notice, they're near the top of that slide. Just as surely as one final plague was yet to come, bringing about the death of the firstborn of both man and beast, might I submit that one first lesson, and Brother Lucas read it in our lesson text this evening, found back in chapter 10, verse number 2 and 3. Specifically, again, revisiting verse 2, the text reads, And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son, and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them. 
that ye may know how that I am the Lord. That was again leading up to the eighth plague, but it could well, of course, be noted. It was mentioned in regard to a few of the others. This particular plague is given that they may know that I am the Lord. To you and I today, that may seem as if no good lesson could come from that because don't all of us know that God is the Lord? And yet it seems as if in various places through the sacred text, various warnings to that extent are still given to you and me today. Let us spend a moment and reflect on just a few of these features. Though Pharaoh by that point had seen seven plagues, Though he had witnessed his cattle die, and though he had seen the people of the land plagued so with flies and with water turned to blood and the many other things therein mentioned, he nonetheless refused to submit and honor God as the Lord. He still lifted himself up. He turned his attention to what his magicians and sorcerers could do. He looked inward as to what he was proclaimed to be among the Egyptian people. All the while, doesn't that help us note that there is a parallel situation that not only occurred today, occurs today, but it has virtually since the dawn of time. That lesson I've tried to state in language like this. There are many in our world today who by way of mouth will admit that there's a God. There's such overwhelming evidence to that effect that it really cannot be contramanded. But the fact that they admit it certainly doesn't imply that they live by the words that He has given. Though they may admit it, that there is a God. That fact does not rule in in their heart. They do not, in fact, follow His Son, nor do they give homage to His Word. They simply, it seems, think that that word alone seems to mean something. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul addressed a situation much like that in the opening chapter of the Roman letter? In Romans 1, as Paul began his inspired discussion of the difficulties and problems of the Gentile world, some of the things of which they were guilty, beginning in verse 21, the description is this. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. But their vain imagination, in fact, led them to any number of other activities of which the rest of the chapter details. Such things as homosexuality, murder, disobedience to parents, dishonesty of various sorts, strife and division on every hand. Isn't it amazing, Paul says, first of all, these that knew God did not glorify Him as God. That sounds exactly like this situation in Egypt in many ways, doesn't it? There were these who might well admit that there was a God, but the thought went no further than that. And today, you and I, of course, deal with a similar situation. Isn't it somewhat breathtaking to notice how that that opening chapter of Romans proceeds? These who knew God ultimately in verse 25, because they failed to honor Him as such, in fact did this. They worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, they turned their attention more to what the Creator had made than the one that made it. Doesn't that speak volumes about some of what you and I witness today? Those who can in fact state so much about the grandeur of this planet and environmentalists who lift it up so high but give very little interest to the one that made it and who put these cycles in place and who still overrules it day by day with the impressiveness of His Word. 
that's the kind of situation that Paul described in Romans 1. Not only did it impact that attribute of their existence, it also did so their viewpoint of spirituality. Because when they glorified not God, they turned their attention to other supposed deities. That's exactly what the Egyptians had done. They didn't honor God, but they did have a whole host of gods like Osiris and Ra and all the others. Today, how sad it is to think of our world where so many in our land especially will admit that there's a God, but they do not serve Him. How many never darken the door of a church building this morning, though they would admit that there is a God. And so the question would be, is He really the Lord of their life if they do not serve Him? And the obvious answer is no. Didn't Jesus Himself, in fact, state it rhetorically in this question in Luke 6.46? Why call you be Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see, if Jesus is really the Lord, then it naturally follows that one must do that which the Lord commands. And so today, those who do not do what the Lord says, then He is not the Lord of their life, despite what they may say, despite what the claim from their their lips may be. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Just as surely as that question was so appropriate for those of the Lord's day, How appropriate and how right is it for us to consider it in our lives today and perhaps in the lives of those that you and I may know. But not only is that lesson an appropriate one drawn from Exodus 10 verse 2, consider with me also another from this couple of chapters. What about the service of God and that which it entails? Somewhat further in chapter 10, We find particularly verse number 8 and verse number 9 has this reading. Exodus 10, beginning in verse 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? So following the coming of the locusts, here was Pharaoh willing to, in fact, it seems, allow them in some measure, but his first question was, who are you going to take? Who is going to make the journey to serve this Lord who is your God? Verse 9, Moses responds. Moses said, we will go with our young men and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. Somewhat later in this very chapter, Moses will put it in slightly different language. He will say, we must take everything. And thus, that brings us to a lesson that can be of benefit to us today. Service to God and what it involves. As I've entitled this particular section, it involves everything. God doesn't permit us to withhold anything from Him. He wants complete control of your heart and complete control of mine. If we are attempting to reserve a portion of it, God, you can have 80%, perhaps 90%, but I am determined to keep this remaining part for myself so that I can do what I want to do when I want to do it the way I'd like to do it. And in that regard, God, you will thus have the majority, but I'm going to hold on to part of it. And thus, in part, that's a way that some choose to attempt to serve the Lord today. As you give some thought to some passages that challenge that thinking, 
What was it the Lord responded in Luke 9, 23, when He was, in fact, in a position to teach so vividly on this subject? He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Isn't it amazing still that the Lord made use of that adverb daily? He again said, If any man, so this is inclusive of every individual, any person that would attempt to follow me, first you must deny yourself. He didn't say to, in the, in the main, deny yourself. He said, that must be denial. And then as you do so, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. As we give some thought then to the denial of self and the thing that follows the pursuit of the Christ, it must be an all-or-nothing arrangement. There were many in the New Testament who attempted this matter of half-hearted service, who attempted to, in fact, describe and give a means of service that would feel comfortable in the light of the world. But that kind of comfort is no comfort to God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That reading of 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16 harmonizes so well with the famous words of James in James 4, verse 4, where in directness and rather straightforward character, the inspired writer James said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You and I thus are not in a position to be friends with the world and think then we can serve God in what time remains. That arrangement wasn't pleasing to the Lord earlier, and it still isn't today. God will later say at Mount Sinai, when He gives this same people the laws that we call the Ten Commandments and all the others that went with it, I am a jealous God, you shall have no other gods before me. Direct statement of Exodus 20. And later on in that same chapter, He'll go on to say, not only that, Thou shalt make no image, any graven or otherwise, neither shalt thou bow down to one. God will not share in a time-sharing way His attention with anyone else. He is the absolute Master, and He is the absolute Creator and the great God of heaven. As you and I give some thought to what it involves in service to Him, might we look at just two of those passages near the bottom? in which we notice there were some in the biblical era who not only attempted this, but we find God's response to how He viewed this attempt on their part. In Malachi chapter 1, last book in the Old Testament, we find the following description given. And I'd invite your attention as we read just a few of the verses in Malachi chapter 1. As we come to this closing minor prophet, we have one of the most uniquely given of the prophecies of the minor prophet era. As you might remember from reading the book of Malachi, it is given in question and answer format. Each time a given question is presented, it's rhetorical in nature and an explanation is immediately given because in essence God by way of the question was accusing them of their failures and they would respond, well how have we failed thee? And then God would explain. As you come to verse number 7 of chapter 1 of Malachi, it says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? 
in that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? As the people were thus, this is somewhat over a century after their return from Babylonian captivity. They had now lapsed into such ritualistic worship that it had lost its significance to them. They came together to the place in which worship was to take place. But do you notice, they were giving God the animals that were sick, the ones that were lame, the ones, you see, that they couldn't use. They'd offer God what was left over. And God rather directly says to them, Do you think your governor would take this? Do you think that those officials in the civil government would be pleased with this kind of offering? It's evil. Notice how straightforwardly God, in fact, reminds them, You give to me your best. You offer, in fact, that which is your best to me because on the one hand, that's what I deserve. And on the other hand, who allowed you to have what you have in the first place? I gave it to you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Read Psalm 24.1. As we appreciate the character of a lesson like that one, the people of that day were in dire need of returning from just a habitual kind of worship to a true recognition of the fact worship must come from the heart. That takes us to Matthew 6, verse 21. Jesus on that occasion said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so tonight, where is your treasure and where is mine? If it's in a bank here in Putnam County, or if it's in the car that's sitting out here in the parking lot, or if it's in your job, then that's where your heart's going to be. But if your treasure is laid up in heaven, and if that's where mine is as well, there's where our heart is, and there's where we will want to be more than anywhere else. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And serving the Lord requires everything in that regard. Isn't it amazing that we can notice that the Israelites at time were going to have to learn that valiant lesson. Perhaps one final matter will come in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. As Paul penned that 2 Corinthian letter, addressing the congregation in Corinth, in the first letter he had in fact reprimanded them for so many failures. But when we come to the 2 Corinthian letter, he admonishes, strengthens, and encourages them. And in chapter 8, verses 5 and following, when he comes to discuss what we call the contribution, he begins at one point to say to them, the churches of Macedonia gave bountifully. Why and how? Because they first gave themselves to the Lord. And isn't that the way that all service works? If you and I will first give our heart and self to the Lord, everything else, such as the monetary contribution, will fall into place. We will give without grudging character. We'll give cheerfully. But we must first give ourselves to the Lord. Have you given yourself to the Lord and have I? It is an appropriate question, isn't it? Because in Exodus 10, we learn here it does require everything. And then as we come to our final lesson of the evening, our third lesson to be extracted from these particular verses, it brings us to the interesting character of chapter 11. We noted earlier that in that brief chapter, we find a very easily understood threat from God. But it's in language that is captivating. 
language that is in fact scintillating in its character. Because in that chapter, we find the following wording. Let us listen to what God said to Moses. Verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the meal, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be any more like it. Pausing only at that point, we notice that in the language of chapter 11, we find a threat from God Himself. A threat. T-H-R-E-A-T. And you and I can understand as we read a threat from the God of heaven that it's worthy of our attention and it's worthy of some reflection. When a human being makes a threat, sometimes he may follow through with it, sometimes he may not. He may change his mind prior to the execution of the threat. As you and I give some thought to a threat which God would in fact set forth, What might be some things that could be of encouragement to us? Again, I've put in italics, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. We can well imagine that would have meant thousands of youngsters, thousands of cattle and other types of animals. This was not just a few that were under the sentence of death. Many, many were there. In fact, later in the book of Exodus, we shall read that every family in which there was one that was to die had one that died. It is amazing to think of the far-reaching aspect of this death. It is an amazing thing to consider this threat by God. As I mentioned just a moment ago, any time that God makes a threat, we should stand up and take great attention, understanding that it is not idle and that whatever is involved in the threat, if there is preparation on our part to be made, we should be ever so earnest and diligent to ensure that that preparation is made. And so later, when the children of Israel will hear God say, you slaughter that Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and lentil, they, it seems, were very dutiful to do that, for they understood the seriousness of the threat. Tonight, when you and I give some thought to the threats that God has set forth in our era, it's true today. He doesn't literally want you and I to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost because He's taken care of that. He sent His Son to be the lamb. But He still does have a threat to those who do not have the blood covering their life to those who still are walking through the corridors of this life being uncovered by the blood of the Lamb. In fact, a similar parallel thing will happen. Without the coverage of that blood, they hang in the eternal balance of a devil's hell. And they hang in that place with God saying, I'm going to send you to hell if 
you do not obey the gospel that I have put in place, the gospel of the blessedness of my Son. When we read about the hope of the gospel in Colossians 1 verse 5, and that hope in which those of Galatia had been so quickly moved aside, Paul in earnestness thus strove to bring them back to the realization of the urgency. Because though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any of the gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. What about this thread of God in our era today? I've listed just a few of the passages that so quickly come to each of our minds, I'm sure. We might well begin in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, the very last verse in that chapter. As we give some thought to what Jesus there said, this is the Son of God speaking. Jesus, as He made that record of the judgment, He began in verse 31 by saying, All nations will be gathered there. No one is exempt. No one will be absent. All nations will be gathered, and there will be a separation, those on the right and those on the left. One class is recognized as goats, the other as sheep. As each class is addressed, we first of all notice that there's a very sore and sincere message to those who are on the left, because to them, they are found unready, unprepared. Sometimes we sing that song, unprepared to meet thy God. It is a frightening thing to think about. Perhaps the most frightening thing of all in that chapter comes in verse 46 when Jesus said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. What these? These that were unprepared. These that were not ready to meet the Maker. These that had not lived their life in joyful admonition of what God had decreed. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. That's a threat, and it's not an idle one. It's everlasting punishment, not just for a year or two or ten or a century or even a millennium. It's unending punishment, unceasing, that which never comes to its end. Later in the Revelation, we find it described on a number of occasions, chapters 19 and 20 in particular, in which there we read about this lake burning with fire and with brimstone. The devil and all his henchmen are cast therein. And there John says, never is it to be quenched. When Jesus addressed the matter in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48, in likening it to that valley of Hinnom, he too described it as unquenchable fire, where the worm doesn't die, where in fact there is this place of outer darkness, the stench is so great on that occasion that the Lord described it in those heinous terms that conjure in our mind just how awful this place is. In fact, on that very occasion, Jesus, if we may paraphrase it, put it in language like this, if your eye causes you to offend, you would be better off to pluck out the eye and live life with one eye than have two and have them both cast into hell. He said, if your right arm causes you to offend, you would be better off to cut that arm off and to live life with only one arm than to have two and have both cast into hell. Similarly for two feet, if your foot causes you to offend, better would you be to cut off the foot. Can we not thus give some thought to how serious this threat is? Not only are these passages under discussion, what about that which Paul spoke to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1? Here was a congregation who was greatly bothered by the thought of the second coming of Christ. 
They were agitated because they misunderstood some of the features of it. And yet, as Paul opened this Second Thessalonian letter, it was to them that he said, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. God has given us His threat, but in His mercy and in His love He has told us how to prepare so that we will not be the recipients of the threat. Just like He told the children of Israel to put the blood on the doorpost, He has told you and I about the gospel plan of salvation. This is what you must do to be covered by the blood of my Son. Are you covered by it tonight? Are you living your life in wholesome recognition of what God's threat has been and what it shall be again? It must be a frightening thing as one approaches the door of death. And you and I no doubt have known many who have approached that door and proceeded through it, not ready, not ready. Are you ready tonight? Your death could come before morning light. This very night may be your last night on earth. It may be mine as well. None of us know. The end of time could come. It may not just be your death or mine. Truly, the Lord may return the second time, and then the judgment will follow. Are you ready? It is a sobering question. Tonight, as we have looked at these matters from Exodus chapters 10 and 11, we've been reminded of the fact that service to God requires everything and that threats to God are not idle. He wants those of that day, or He did want them to know, and He wants you and I to know today, He is the Lord. Is He the Lord of your life? If He's not, make some changes starting tonight. It's not that merely our elders would admonish you to do so. It's the fact God admonishes it. And He has told you what changes He would ask and demand that you make. If we could be of assistance in a public response on your part to the invitation of the gospel, we'd be honored to be a part of that public response. If you need to rededicate your life, perhaps you've been weak. Maybe you have failed to grow spiritually. Maybe you're in a position where you have reached the very depths of what faith you once had. And you know that you'd like to be back in strength where you once were. Let brethren here pray for you. Let us be there with a hand of encouragement and support. If you've never become a Christian, you haven't begun yet to walk the blessed pathway that leads to everlasting life. You need to make that decision tonight. Today is the day of salvation, reads verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6. And if we could help in your public response that will culminate in your immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins, we'd be honored to help. We would just ask you let us know in what way we can help while together we stand and while we sing.